Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with Victor Yako, a UX researcher, strategist, and author. Today we talk about UX, the joys of parenthood, alcohol in the workplace, and writing a book. Speaking of books, stick around to the end of this episode for a 39% discount on Victor's book, Design for the Mind. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Victor Yako. Okay, guys, today I would like to welcome Victor Yako, as he says, rhymes with taco, research director and intuitive company, strategist, public speaker, and the author of Design for the Mind, Seven Psychological Principles of Persuasive Design. Victor, thank you for being on Obsessed with Design. Josh, thank you for having me. So you are, um, as we mentioned right before we started recording here, one of the first pure UX guys and researcher that we've had on the show. So I'm really excited to dig into your story and uh, help you help us figure out what UX is all about. Great. Let's let's do that. It should make for an exciting conversation. <laughs> so I believe that you had uh, found us and reached out online about being on the show. So other designers out there, if you have a story to tell or unique perspective, this could be you someday, so be sure to reach out to us. Yeah, absolutely, and and to give a little insight, um, and and if it helps people like you, I think that I reach out every now and then to design focused podcasts, uh, particularly now that I'm promoting my book, Design for the Mind, that uh, look interesting, that have have relevant topics, and you know, you, it's it's really easy to find. There's there's tons of podcasts, but if you if you're on iTunes. Which is where I get my podcast through. Uh, there's always a hot, hot and new section, or new and hot, or something like that, or hot and trending. And you know, I think I saw yours showing up in one of those areas, and it's like, hey, this looks like something that would be a good fit. But yeah, I, I think it makes more often than not, I've heard it makes the show host's life easier if people are reaching out and either suggesting guests or asking to be a guest and, and giving a good logical reason why you should be a guest and it, help, it helps everybody. I, I definitely aspire to fancy myself as either hot or trending. So that's, that's good to know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fairly certain <laughs> that you were, you were, maybe you were both. How could you not be both, right? One, or the, right. one and the other. Come on, come on people. <laughs> this is a face for radio. Um, and also as you know, I, as I typically do with these, uh, interviews before we jump on, I, I take a quick look at everybody's social media activity, see if there's anything exciting that I should bring up. And I saw that you are also a recent guest on the busy creator podcast. Yes. Yes. Is that one that you listen to as well? Yeah. With, so uh, Prescott's a friend Prescott, of ours yeah. and oh, great. we've been on one another's shows. Uh, apparently I'm a couple episodes behind, so I, I haven't heard that one yet, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see that you were, uh, you were on there as well. Yeah. I had a great conversation. He really pressed hard about, give me some, give me some good insight for those who are considering taking on a, a career in design or who are just starting out, you know, how are they going to build up their skills and, I appreciated his line of questions and make me think a little bit harder about, from my perspective, what, what types of advice I have around that. So yeah, I had a great conversation with him. He's, he's a great guy. 
Very cool. Well, um, as we do with many of our guests, I'd like to jump in and learn a little bit about your origin story as a designer and, and really how you got attracted to design and doing that professionally. Yeah, I think I have what would be considered a less traditional route, although I know that design brings in people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. I was the kid who could never color in, in the lines. I was not an artist in any any way, shape, or form. Um, I was always much happier writing and reading. And so I pretty much stumbled into working in the design field. And to be clear, I'm not a designer. I'm all research. I work on design teams, and I my research is translated into design recommendations and into you know features or workflows that my designer colleagues are right there side by side with me creating. Um, but I'm not the one sketching anything out. In the end, I'm working with them and saying, you know, this this is this is the visualization of what I'm thinking the users are telling me that they'll that they will need to accomplish their tasks. Um, so that being said, yeah, I was never going to be a, a very artistic person with my creations, with my hands, but I've always engaged in work with people and research, and my background is in psychology and communication, and I went to school and started my career. I was studying how people interact with built spaces like zoos and science centers and how they receive information and then what types, if any, uh, behavior reactions they have to that. So, for example, if you go to a zoo, they want everyone to have a great time and think the elephants are wonderful, but they also want you to understand conservation issues, and they want you to know that your purchasing decisions have an impact on the environment because if you're buying something that requires clear-cutting in African forests, then you're you're helping to contribute to the destruction of elephant habitat, and maybe you should rethink some of your purchasing decisions. And those are all more subtle uh, pieces of information that people receive in those settings. And and I was involved um, in a in an organization that tried to measure if these were effective and how, from a psychological perspective, we could best communicate things like that. And, and so that's really where I made my space going through and getting my PhD as well, as I studied. How do we communicate using different value sets to people about environmental issues? And I had a, a good background then in research and creating studies and working with people, observing people as they engaged in activities in zoos, science centers, nature centers, all that. And so an opportunity arose where I was relocating and I was in touch with a former colleague and she had said that she had been doing research that was very similar to what we did in zoos and science centers, but with just like a different language and a different uh, lens around what the topic was. So it was, and it was digital design. I was like, okay, I have no idea what that is. And (laughs) I, but I came and I started doing some side work for intuitive company and sort of got my feet wet. And it was, it was this weird blend of I had the research expertise, and so I knew exactly what I was talking about. I knew exactly how to design a study, but I didn't necessarily know how to communicate with everyone. So I'm like sitting in meetings and I'm Googling the most basic design terms, you know, wireframes, um, main navigation, all that like very industry-focused terms that I had no familiarity with. Um, and so 
I, I was, I felt sort of like, where am I when it came to that kind of thing? But as I learned the terminology and as I learned my job, uh, because I was then hired in full time, um, and I relocated from Columbus, Ohio to Philadelphia, PA, that all the things I learned about communicating to people, all the things I learned about the psychology of trying to influence people's behavior in settings like science centers and zoos was 100% applicable in these digital spaces. It was just a different medium of communication. It was a different form of people interacting. You're interacting with a screen. And a lot of times in zoos and science centers, you're also interacting with a screen. I mean, they're a little slower to adapt, but they all, by the time I was leaving that, that area, they all had kiosks. They all had touchscreen um, digital interactives at, at most of their exhibits if they could get the funding. And they were all just starting to dip their toe into exhibit-specific or zoo-specific or science center-specific applications where people could walk around with their smartphones and, and do things that would try to enhance their visit um, through the app or through a wireless, uh, a mobile website. So that wasn't completely unfamiliar, but to see, oh my gosh, people you know need some level of persuasive communication when they're using their bank application because it makes the experience 10 times better – that was a real aha moment for me. And I thought my job when I was working with zoos and science centers was to translate what could be very um, heavy in terms of the terminology and the theory used psychological research into actionable practitioner focused recommendations. And that's what I was able to start doing in the digital space as well. And I was like, how exciting is this? So I started writing about it and trying to write in a way that was focused on giving applied practitioner focused translation to these psychological principles that exist. So that's, that's a long way of getting to where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if this was a uh, part of your research in the, in the zoo world, but I know my kids love the zoo and there's nothing that's more persuasive in the user experience of the zoo than, than the zoo gift shop apparently. So it's, <laughs> I would say that that experience is typically pretty optimized for daddy. Can I have a. Yes. And, and to I've noticed that uh, that is not lost on zoos, that many zoos have you exit through the gift shop. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> exactly. let's not forget to uh, remind you and your children that have them go kicking and screaming out into the parking lot or else buy them a stuffed draft. <laughs> Nothing uh, creates a meltdown faster than a not this time at the uh, gift shop. <laughs> True words. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, um, before we jump into some more details about you, tell us a little bit about Intuitive Company or is it is it EY Intuitive now? Sure. Yeah, we are a digital design firm located in Philly, about 60 people strong, and we focus on clients, outward-facing projects, but we are part of a much larger company now. We were acquired in December. And so what we do, though, is we're interaction design. We're very user-focused, meaning my job is a researcher to talk to users, to get feedback from users, and to make sure that we're taking usability from the actual user standpoint into consideration as we engage in our projects and our clients range from everything from uh, banks, healthcare and pharmaceuticals to 
universities, um, museums. And so it's not, we're not super industry focused uh, at this point, although our principal's backgrounds were, were from banking in the financial sector. And so there's obviously a lot of opportunity that exists naturally. And it was a whole fintech uh, movement, but we have a, a nice spot in that as well. But we really focus on the front end stuff. So it's it's interaction design. We we create workflows, uh, very transactional based types of design. So somebody's doing something to accomplish a task, not just really trying to make the best looking website. Um, and then we have front end development as well. But then we usually hook up with our clients, and they'll um, they'll provide the back end resources to getting everything into their system and integrated. But yeah, we we really. It, it's been a fun time. When I came, I was the 28th employee, and it's three years later, and we're up to 60 and acquired by a billion, billion, billion dollar company. <laughs> um, and it's been a fun ride, and, and hopefully it's just going to be a lot more opportunity because of that. Uh, but we're trying to keep the small studio feel, and we're trying to keep the outward client focus uh, as well with all that. Cool. So for you personally, what's a, what's a normal day look like as far as your mix of research or review or client facing time or writing or what's that look like for you? Good question. So it, every day is different, which I'm sure you hear a lot, but as a researcher, <clears throat> a lot of what I'm doing is trying to keep track of multiple projects that I'm on and where we're at in the research phase, because I might need to be strategic about how I'm using my time so if I wake up and it might be something like uh, checking my emails and making sure that people who I've reached out to to try to schedule interviews with have replied, um, it might be doing spending some time looking through an Excel spreadsheet and some survey data and then determining if I need to do some statistical analysis for a report out on that data uh, or it could be listening to interview recordings and trying to draw meaningful themes across three or four people that I've been doing interviews with. And then a lot of it will end up being talking with clients. You know, we, we keep a, we're, we're pretty nicely integrated. We don't go and work on our client sites for days or weeks at a time, but we do have regular check-ins and what that'll end up being is we'll talk about the research and then the designers that I work with will start to show concepts of, of what they're coming up with. And that's another big part of my day is not just telling the, my designer colleagues that I'm done with my research and here's what I found, but actually making them an integrated part of that. And I found the best way to do that is really to have them be my sidekick. So um, moving away from a model where I used to go out with another researcher and they would take notes for me or they would help with observations or they would, you know, be an active participant. Uh, instead, taking out a designer and saying, you know, let's see what's going on in the real world together. Uh, that way you're right there. You can hear it from the user's mouths. And I, I think that's created a much more powerful experience um, from the feedback I've gotten from my team members. And just trying to then make sure you're respectful of the fact that they're designers and they need their time to design. So if it gets to be a choice between attending a research interview session and designing, they're going to be designing and I'm going to have to translate what I found to them later. And then, you know, like reports, are, most of our report outs are in the form of some type of uh, deck through Keynote or something and, and creating those 
and working with my visual design colleagues to make them look much nicer than I would have them being if it was just me creating them. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think, um, from your perspective, are the characteristics of designers who thrive in that environment? Wow, that's a great question. And it's one that I love to answer because I've been so impressed with the designers that I work with. And I mean, it's really, that's, that's not just a line of crap. Like I really admire the people that I work with. They are driven. Um, but the main characteristic that comes to my mind whenever I think of a good designer, uh, of course, I think of specific people that I work with and they love a challenge. They want to solve a problem. They don't want to just copy and paste their last design or they don't want to take the design they made for a healthcare provider and switch out the logo and have it be the pharmaceutical company's design as well. They want to know what the problems the users are currently having or if it's a product that is being conceptualized, what is the problem this product is supposed to solve? And then how do we solve it in a really in, – in a true way? So if I go out and we do some usability testing and we find, okay, this doesn't seem to work on the ground in real life the way we thought it would, they're not like, well, the user's stupid and they need to learn how to use it. It's like it's a challenge. It's not a threat to their design abilities. It's like, okay, well, I can try something different and here's some things that we can look at doing and – so that's I think that's why I admire my colleagues so much is that where there's times where you might think that it's like, oh, I could I could phone this in, that it's no, I'm going to hit my craft as hard as I can and come up with something that really solves the problem each time. Very cool. So maybe shifting gears a little bit, I know from your bio, you talked about how you're doing uh, more speaking now. So. Um, what kinds of conferences do you look for and how much of that is uh, kind of worked into your schedule? Yeah, well, we have a super generous conference program where if I get accepted to speak at a conference, I can pretty much attend it. And so I'm pretty liberal with the conferences that I'm looking at, but I'll give you some examples. I am speaking, well, I recently gave a workshop with a colleague um, at both the IA Summit, which is Information Architect institutes annual conference i think mm-hmm. and that was down in atlanta this year and then i gave that same workshop as part of uxpa the user experience professionals association uh, annual meeting which was in seattle but coming up in the fall i'm going to be speaking at um, an event called big design in dallas and i, I spoke there last year as well but uh, what i'm really excited about that uh, and i'll get back to that in a minute but then um, so basically, I, I, I'll, I'll get back to that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I look for conferences that are going to be pretty design heavy, but I like ones that integrate all the different aspects of, of technology. So for example, I'm also going to be speaking at a conference called Full Stack in Toronto, and that does look at the full stack. And I am actually one of the few people that are going to be speaking as more specific to like a user experience design focused talk where I'm going to be talking about designing social experiences versus people who are talking about different technologies and different other levels um, around the design and development processes. So I, I look for that. And then 
you know, if it's one where I don't necessarily have a size preference, but one of the things that I'm really passionate about and an area where my speaking has started to increase in the last year or so is talking about um, alcohol abuse and addressing the culture of alcohol that we see in design and technology. And I know it's not specifically only design and technology as fields of employment that have uh, cultures where there's alcohol prevalent and that can lead to alcohol abuse happening. But so, for example, the big design conference that I'm speaking at in Dallas this year, I'm giving my talk about uh, addressing the culture of alcohol and design. And it's really something that my background was, I was abusing alcohol. And once I stopped, you know, I had to get my life under control. That was two years ago. And in those two years, I wrote dozens of articles that were published on various blogs. And I got a book deal and wrote my book. And my personal life went from a living hell to much more pleasant. <laughs> not not <laughs> everything is perfect, but much more pleasant is always better than a living hell. I'll say that. Uh, so my message is really not that alcohol is bad and we should ban alcohol and nobody should talk about it and we shouldn't have alcohol at our events. It's more like, hey, there are people like me who struggle really quietly and aren't performing our best. And then we might start trying to clean up our act and one of the things I noticed when I was cleaning up my act was how difficult it was to do that in a setting where we had the office keg and where we wine and dine clients as part of our regular um, you know, work. And it's like, do I not show up to the bar to happy hour with a client and then I won't look like a team player? Or do I show up, but then I'm taking a ribbing about being the only person ordering a Perrier? And it's like, well both of those are bad options. I should show up and nobody should ask me why I'm not drinking. Um, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it should be. It shouldn't be an issue. And and I felt like after I had a year of sobriety and after I had experienced the success that I was starting to feel I was experiencing, that it only seemed right to try to give back in a way that was like, well, I have a big mouth and if I'm going to use it to talk about psychology and design, I better start using it for something that's also going to help other people who might not be in a position where they can put their issues out there or talk about this as easily. And so it, it, it took, you know, a deep breath. It wasn't easy to do, but I started writing about it after I was sober for a year and now I've started speaking about it as well. And it's something that I would say is more along the lines of my my passion versus like my craft or whatever. But my passion is to just try to talk about this as, as in a way that starts a dialogue and a conversation, not makes anybody feel like, oh, I'm bad or it's us against them. It, that's just not the way it needs to be from my perspective. Sure. So what would be, you know, a good suggestion or kind of a first step that um, design firms could take if they feel like they're overemphasizing alcohol in the workplace? Sure. Well, I think that one of the issues that I've heard a lot about and that I experienced myself is simply how you use your your words and you talk about it. So if you're having an event and there's going to be alcohol there, that's fine. But let's talk about some of the other things that are going to be there as well. And it's not just every event happens at an area where we'll be having an open bar and beer pong. Like, let's talk about some of the other things. Uh, I have a little blurb that I show on a slide that's like making an event feel or a workplace feel more inclusive is as simple as saying something like 
And we're going to have soft drinks available for those who don't drink because you're instantly inserting this idea that not everybody's expected to drink. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you leave it off of the table or off of the description and everything is – or if you have a workplace and you only have the keg and you only have the beer fridge, you're setting this expectation whether you know it or not that it's just normal to drink and – from my experience as an alcohol abuser, that's a wonderful thing until you're trying to clean your act up. And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, it's not unusual to have a beer at your desk at, at two in the afternoon. If the beer is always around, no one looks twice. Um, and so saying things like, you know, we've also got tons of water and we expect everybody to drink whatever it is that, that their their uh, beverage of choice is and, and we're not going to be the why aren't you drinking alcohol police which I think people do unconsciously because it's almost a way of sort of being an icebreaker like what are you drinking uh, why aren't you drinking alcohol um, but from what I've experienced and what I've heard is that that's a very uh, it, it starts to feel like already you're in the spotlight when you're not drinking and then mm-hmm. have a reason to not be drinking to say it out loud or to say it in front of potential clients is adding an extra layer of uh, insecurity or uh, just lack of feeling a part of things to people. And, and one thing I would also like to say just on that is so one of the biggest benefits and the joys I've had of being able to write and talk about it is that people have come out and, and emailed me and, and spoken to me about their experiences. And my experience is just a small, you know, it's one in a huge bucket. And so I have had my perspective shifted even as I've talked about it. And it's not all about me, even though I want it to be sometimes. It's not all about people who abuse alcohol. There's also people who just don't feel comfortable around a lot of people drinking and they either choose to not be or they choose to leave early or they choose to fake it and pretend like they're drinking something. And I really feel like with some simple shifts in our language and how we think about our events and how we think about our workplaces that we could still have drinking for people that want it, but we could also have a safe and secure environment for everybody who's in attendance. And and that's what my hope is um, as, as I move forward with trying to pitch my talk to various venues and do, do work behind the scenes or with writing and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great point and also sort of an ironic thing to have in a conference where I know a lot of the conferences are driven by the happy hour social time after the session. So it's sometimes those conferences kind of become all about the party, too. Right. No, exactly. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about. And whether or not you do anything with that information is up to you being the conference organizer or whatever. But to have an awareness, I think, is at least an important first step into saying, like, you know, we should maybe include on our after hours event description that, of course, there will be plenty of, of soft beverages available. And so that way it doesn't feel weird if you're ordering one. Let's see how this transition goes. But as a guy who was formerly obsessed with drinking, um, perhaps you could talk us through what you're most obsessed with right now. Oh, man. Well, I have a 16-month-old daughter, so I'm sort of oh, obsessed congratulations. with the, the awesome stuff that she's doing is just amazing. Every day, it's something new. She She's not talking very much yet, but she is 
recognizing words. And so anything you tell her to get, she'll go get it. I know. I know that sounds bad. That sounds like I'm making a, I'm having a fun dog or something, but <laughs> fetch baby. <laughs> it's uh, just amazing to think about this baby that was a lump of clay a month, uh, a year ago. And mm. now she's walking. And if I say, go get a book, she gets a book. If I say, go get your doll, she gets the doll. If I say, who's mommy, she points to mommy. It's like these things that are just amazing. And to think about the fact that we're influencing that. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, particularly with my background as being not such a great guy drinking alcohol and, and treating people bad, that what what can I do to make sure I'm I'm setting her up for the best future possible, which and then I think that I we foreshadowed it. My other obsession to the point of being like, what might I want to write about next? What what do I really feel passionate about is the discussion around alcohol. But I, I feel like it's got it's going to go further than that in some way. I don't think it's necessarily that alcohol is the issue, but it's around these creating inclusive environments. Um, and so I feel like. It's something where the more I talk about it to people like you, the more I talk about it at conferences, uh, I'm maturing and I'm maturing in my view. Whereas, you know, I've evolved in the last year and a half about where I did think, oh, this is all about alcohol abusers and people that were like me to where I'm thinking more about, well, this is not just about alcohol abusers. There's people that have a perfectly fine relationship with alcohol in terms of their ability to consume it, but they have either a history where something bad happened from uh, people who were intoxicated around them, they're on medication, they're a number of things, so many things that it really doesn't matter, actually. But talking about it is very exciting to me, and I'm passionate about it, and I'm hopeful that as I progress, there might be some some more writing that I do, maybe a book length or a small book uh, around sort of culture and alcohol but but a solutions focused not something that's just like oh this is bad and this is what's hmm. happening well, i think there's so much talk about um culture in the workplace in general these days and especially mm -hmm. if you think back to or you know try to envision what our parents workplace probably looked like when they were our age you know <laughs> something that's sort of the opposite of what we see today that's very closed off and very serious and, you know, very, you know, business appropriate dress mm -hmm. and all of these kind of things, much more stuffy. And I think, uh, maybe just as a, as a culture, at least in the Western world, we've definitely rebelled against that and gone to kind of this far extreme where now it's like, it's almost, uh, like the height of the eighties, like the, <laughs> the excess. And, right. uh, I think to your point, you know, just having an open discussion about, you know, making everybody feel comfortable and finding a space that, that works for everyone, I, I think is a, is a noble pursuit. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to uh, have any allies on the journey. And I, yeah, again, I think it's something where it doesn't have to be confrontational either. And so we can all be involved and we can all feel good about what it is we're doing and talking about and why. So maybe um, speaking of future books, let's, Let's talk a little bit about your current book. So Design for the Mind, Seven Psychological Principles of Persuasive Design. So give me some background on kind of when you decided to do that and how long it took and kind of how, sure. how you determined, hey, I'm going to write a book. Yeah, great. I'd love to talk about that. Well, just thinking back to as a child and growing up, I, I have always had this 
profound respect for authors and people who create things with words. And I think part of that was instilled in me by my mom at an early age where she just shoved a book in my hand nonstop and was like, you know, reading is the thing to do. And and from that, I sort of extrapolated to, and authors must be the coolest people in the world, naturally. And so I've always said that I would write a book, but I never thought I'd write a book about applying psychology to design. <laughs> then going back to when I started to sober up and was around the same time I had been working at Intuitive for about you know, six to eight months, and it was around the same time that my huge light bulb of, hey, all this stuff from my psychological background and getting my PhD and my my job in that industry where I was looking at zoos and science centers and communication applies here that I started writing. And, and that was actually one of the brightest spots in my life when I was coming to the end of my drinking career was that I had had an article accepted for publication at a list apart. And it was all about uh, applying persuasive psychology to design and thinking about how we can apply that to our design work. And so I, I, when I stopped drinking, I had to focus on something else with all that free time. And <laughs> what am I going to do with all this time? Exactly. It sounds so bad, but that's pretty <laughs> much. What, so uh, now that you're not going to be drunk every night and feeling like crap in the morning, what are you going to do? And and yeah, I think it's true that to some extent that you almost need to replace one addiction with another. And I jumped into writing headfirst, and I was very fortunate that I had some. Uh, industry blogs like Boxes and Arrows and Smashing Magazine that were interested in the topics enough that they were like, yes, please write for us. And I realized by the time I wrote three articles around the topic that I had enough in terms of what I knew about from a psychological perspective to write a book and that the real challenge was going to be convincing someone else uh, from a publisher standpoint that the there was a book worthy of being written about yeah. the topic. And <clears throat> so from there... I, I wrote up a proposal and shopped it around and found a home at Manning, which um, you know was not not the world's easiest process. Uh, and having people looking at your work and criticizing it and commenting on it is always something that you feel very exposed. But I started <laughs> then to, I guess, expose myself to that feeling by talking about the alcohol piece as well, and and then the writing of the book. I don't know if it was simple. I don't want to. I think I have the benefit of hindsight now. It, w- there was never a point where I thought, "Oh my gosh, I want to quit. I hate this." But my daughter was born like five days after I signed my book deal, and there was some level of tension at times where I was having to choose between helping my wife out and being a good husband and being a good father. Versus, oh crap, I have a writing deadline and I really am, don't see where I'm going to have any time or I can't do another night of only three hours of sleep with the baby and write tomorrow. So that added some complexity to it. But the most complicated part about writing it seemed to be the production piece where my book fell off the radar <laughs> and <laughs> I had to jump back in and remind them that I had submitted it a few months ago and could they please get back to me on when it was going to become a real book. Um, but after that, it was a process of working with their editors and, and getting it out and it was released at the end of June. So it's been around for, it's been available for pre-order for over a year. And so I knew that there'd been some 
people who had had access to at least the drafty versions of it. And then when it actually came out, everybody got their hard copy or downloadable PDF that was in the final format. So all all was okay on on that. And I'm you know I'm thankful for you and and for others who have had me on their shows to help promote my book and also for the conferences and and things where I speak at. But it's you really have to be your own marketer, which oh, yeah. is not always the most comfortable position to be in. But you know the the publisher that I worked with, Manning Publications, they have a marketing staff, but I, I'm plenty sure it's one and a half people, and and you know they have hundreds of books that are out there, and so they really they're spread very thin. But you know I, I I've gone from being sort of shy about that to almost being probably overbearing like hey josh <laughs> you should have me on your show because i can talk about this and write a and i wrote a book what do you say <laughs> <laughs> that was and, not how i was a year or two ago i promise you <laughs> and busy podcast hosts go hey where'd this guy come from oh that's yeah. cool he's got a book yeah let's have him on the show yeah that I'll, was I'll, easy Yes, if I can make your life easy and, and you can make my life a little easier with some help. So, yeah, I mean, but it's been cool. It's been something where because of the publication delay, um, I, I started trying to organize events like in February and March um, because I, my initial release date was March 15th. Um, fast forward and it came out at the very end of June. But so in, in February, I was pitching to different events and I knew I was going to be speaking at the UXPA conference, our annual meeting in Seattle. And so there's this really cool bookstore called Ada's um, Technical Books and Cafe, I believe is the full name. And I talked to their their event staff and was like, hey, I wanna I'll be out there in June. I'm gonna have this book. Can I can I give like a talk? And they were like, sure. And then I had to call them back in May and be like, I don't think I'm going to have this book. And they were like, oh, you should still come and speak. And so I had an, I like to say I had an author event without a real book, which was true, but it was really cool. And they hosted it. And, you know, there was like 25 people that showed up and anyone who had wanted to, um, they had little like inserts that I could sign if they wanted to pre-order the book and then have an autograph for it to put in. So it was very cool. Those are the kind of things that I, I think that are like, well, writing a book, I'm not going to make a million bucks. I might not even make another dollar after what my advance was. But there's these opportunities in speaking on your show and helping to not only talk about the book, but to talk about my message related to alcohol and to learn from you. It's like all things that have been doors that have opened since getting the, the book deal and, and also you know crediting sobriety for that as well. Do you feel like your um, your book has helped open any doors at work? Are there any clients who've come to you guys through the book or any exposure or things that you think have happened from that? Well, I think that I can point to a few occurrences. Um, the answer to the client question is no, not that I know of. But uh, again, with it just being out, hopefully that's something in the future. It is something we talk about and when we talk about our capabilities and we talk about some of our accomplishments. You know, that's one of the pieces that we, we highlight as one of our research team's greatest hits. But we had a client um, with a bank who was very into, even before I ever met him, um, he was he was aware of like a lot of these principles of influence and, and how to sort of try to align what you're doing 
in your application with some of these principles. And so he was super excited when he found out that you know, I had a background in this and was able to talk the same language and that when he had he had this little spreadsheet that had all these different um, heuristics or like shortcuts that people take with their mind when they make decisions and how to look for them in your application. And, you know, I was able to communicate with him like using that same language and be like, yes, of course, I'll take a look at your property and I'll, I'll also tell you how our designs are going to align with some of these principles that you'd like us to address. And so it was really fun to work with him because I got to put together a couple presentations that he was then going to take on to help build his business case for this new product he was trying to push for and why it would work from a psychological and influential perspective. Um, Then from a personal slash professional standpoint, I was able to get a promotion. Um, My title's research director. I was a senior researcher. And, you know, nobody said, here's a promotion because you wrote a book. But I would like to think that having that as one of my accomplishments um, helped certainly to raise the case for the fact that I was trying to be really at the, at the edge of my craft. It's a, pushing it forward and saying, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to create a name for myself. And as I do this, that hopefully I'm creating a very positive name for our company and the opportunities that we can afford potential clients um, and, and what we bring to the table that differentiates us from competitors. So I think that was recognized in the form of a promotion and I appreciated that. So let's say that the book does bring in a client to you guys and not just a client, but a dream client. What do you think of, what would a dream project look like for you? And what's something that you'd like to tackle you haven't been able to do yet? Ooh, that's a, that's an exciting question. I haven't sort of thought about a, a dream. I think a dream project or a dream client would include the ability to do research and then take that research and build so like let's say i like one method a lot that i don't get to do very often called contextual inquiry are you familiar with that i'm not is this an example of contextual inquiry (laughs) no i wish if this was contextual inquiry i'd be sitting next to you watching you as you do your podcast and that's not creepy at all no (laughs) hey (laughs) true story i used to stand around a zoo with a clipboard drawing the past people took walking through exhibits and making little marks wherever they stopped to represent, you know, the fact that they were looking at something and engaging. So I am nothing if I'm not creepy. (laughs) Take that. Uh, No. So contextual inquiry though. So the context part is being in the setting and then the inquiry is, you know, engaging in a study there. And so like, let's say, I wanted to create an app that would help podcasters while I should go out then and sit with you while you're doing a few podcasts to observe you and to see what tools you're using now. Like right now, are you flipping through a notebook to look at notes you made about the show? Are you, do you have a, something up on your computer? Are you working with three things at the same time that maybe we could uh, think about how could we combine these into one perfect podcaster app that would allow you to not spread yourself out but have really focused conversations or whatever you know and then while you're doing your current job 
asking you, so why are you doing this? Or tell me about, you know, what is a typical situation and how would you resolve it if a problem came up? If all of a sudden the podcast dropped, what would you do? And sort of learning from somebody as they're engaging in the task that you're thinking about designing around. So that would be one part of my dream project and my dream client is that I would get to go do a bunch of that. Um, And part of it is because I really like to see people's spaces and understand what we're designing for. And I think that stronger designs come out of that experience, but it's not something you get to do very often. One of the biggest reasons is around budget and time. You know, it costs a lot of money. If you're one of the projects where I've been able to do contextual inquiry, we went to like 15 different cities and it was, you know, we had a month or so to do it. But we really had a large travel budget, and um, that's something that not all projects will have. But then what I'd like to do is not only creating design recommendations and working with the designers to conceptualize the solutions, but creating like a workshop or a training. I would love to do that where I would be able to engage in actual um, discourse or conversation with the client staff to say, hey, here's what we're finding with your users. What do you guys think we should do to solve the problem? Here's what our designs are going to be addressing. How is this going to be useful for you? What can you tell us that might help us think even further about our design solution and making it sure that it's useful for you to take to your clients and to be able to either sell your product or to be able to talk about how it works. So I would love to add this educational component to a project like that. What would you say is, you know, in your role as of UX research, what would you say is your proudest moment to date? Ooh, my proudest moment to date. (laughs) Well, I always get super jazzed up when it's um, something where we're presenting to the client and I, I can really feel that, that the room is listening and that everybody's excited. But I, think about it from the opposite. I've had times where you feel like nobody's receiving your ideas at all. And you're wondering, why is everybody so quiet? And so there was a very specific time. We were in Minnesota presenting to a client where we had done a number of interviews. It was a a medical a feedback tool. So basically like when people do clinical trials, this was a tool that they used to collect the data that would then be analyzed to determine whether or not the treatment was being effective. And their interface was absolutely horrible. And we had done some interviews and, and an assessment of what their current property was. And then we had concepted out, you know, where it could go short term and then this much longer term vision of if you really wanted to knock your user's socks off, here's what you could do. And it was like just everybody was straight-faced. Everybody was attentive, but it was one of those where it was really hard to read the room. And we even left feeling that way, like, okay, I'm not sure how that went. And one of our business development uh, people, um, as soon as we left, emailed us all and said, like, the client was texting me the whole time you guys were talking. They loved it. They want to do, like platform 2.0 and take all these ideas and run with it. And and I think that that was something where I felt extreme pride in not just myself, but my whole team and thinking like we had no idea what, what people were saying, thinking there, there wasn't a lot of responsiveness to our trying to be engaging with the clients that were there, but we kept 
pushing at it, and we really did a good job of explaining what we thought would be the solution and why. And what came out of it was this wonderful feedback that we all left, like saying, "Well, that didn't go so great." So I guess that's that's one example. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of moments where I feel pride. I think that I'm usually pretty proud of how clients receive our our design recommendations that that come from the research, but is definitely a team effort. And I appreciate the fact that my designers make me look really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, appreciating the fact that, um, you know, your role is not design in the classical sense, but mm-hmm. most, most of the designers that we talk to on this show, um, I would categorize or are, are either kind of blessed or ruined by how they, how they see the world around them. So I'm, I'm curious, especially in the world of UX, if there are any particular trends or things that you see out there that just absolutely drive you crazy. Uh, well, I think that there's always this this push for like what's next, what's next, what's going to be the coolest thing, whether it's a wearable or whether it's VR or whatever. And, and for me, the thing that drives me crazy is, and and maybe this comes from not being a designer and being more analytical around like the researchy frame of mind, but I want the stuff that's out today to work well. And so always thinking about how cool is the future going to be. For me, the cool future consists of the present working well. <laughs> like there's so <laughs> many things that I should be able to do or that I think I can do either online or digitally that are either horrible experiences or don't work the way that they make you think that they're working that I want that to be correct before I dream about this future where <laughs> everything is, you know, I'm, I'm just eating a pill for my meals and living a virtual reality. Like I want to be able to, this is a true story. I want to be able to rent a car. And when I show up, the car that I rented is the one that I paid for. And, <laughs> that, I, and that I did it completely online and I didn't have to interact with anyone. Instead of renting the car and showing up in the one that I paid for is completely out of stock and I have to engage with somebody who doesn't feel very friendly towards me and is going to tell me that the only thing that's in stock is this really horrible van. And it's like, no, I I went through the whole workflow. I paid for it online. I have the confirmation as a picture of the car I'm supposed to be driving. <laughs> and it's got your address. I know that somehow, some way this was communicated to you, right? And they're like, meh, whatever. The system won't let us change it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, who cares? Yeah. So I guess that might make me really sound boring or curmudgeonly, but like I want today to work really well. And then we can talk about how awesome and cutting edge tomorrow can be. I like it. My version of that is uh, the voice command uh, phone thing in my car. When I, yeah. when I say call my wife, that it doesn't try to call some other dude that's in my phone book. I want, just want it to just want it to work. Oh my gosh. I have stories about that, especially with having a baby now. Oh my gosh. That is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sure we could go, uh, for another hour just talking about, uh, bad UX, but maybe, uh, to, before we let you go here, um, what's one really great piece of advice that either you've received or one of your favorite pieces of advice to pass along to designers? 
Well, I think that a lot of advice can can feel very much like it's just air. You know, it's hard to do something very actionable. And so, something that I say in when I'm when I'm giving my talk about alcohol is I use this quote that I think is attributed to Gandhi, and then I also talk about the fact that I think that the quotes frustrate me because the more you look into them, it's like, well, did so-and-so actually say this or did somebody else or was this actually what they said or was it slightly (laughs) different? So I use this quote by Gandhi that's be the change you want to see in the world. And then I say, and I have to acknowledge like being that change is hard, hard as, and I usually insert a four letter word, but, um, so my, my point is this, to any designer and to anybody out there who's looking to get into design or better themselves in any way, like change, people talk about it and, and say just do it and you can change, but it is hard. Just changing anything, whether it's an addiction or whether you're just updating your version of Adobe Illustrator and learning the newest features on it, it is hard. Be Take it easy on yourself, but at the same time, be open to learning and be open to new experiences. And when you really feel like you need to change something and it's not working, you should feel free to seek support because that's how I was able to get through a lot of my harder times to this point was through support, through looking at others who have gone through experiences and had hard times and come out on the other side. And maybe they were better or off or maybe they were worse, but they could tell you how it went and they could be supportive because they had experience with the journey you were taking. And so, you know, that applies to anything. If you want to change what time you're showing up to work and you want to get to work an hour earlier, find somebody to be supportive of that and hold you accountable and, and work with them on achieving that goal. And I think that that's something that oftentimes, particularly people who are creative and very individualistic, that it can be hard to ask somebody for support in any area of your life. Uh, But we need to make sure that people know that it's okay because I also know that all my designer friends and colleagues, they're super supportive of me. So I would gladly support them if they ever reached out and said they needed help with, with anything. I think maybe the other thing to encourage people is especially people who listen to this show, designers. I mean, ultimately, whether you're in UX or branding or illustration or whatever, you are in the change business. Like the thing that you do every day is about doing something differently. So being able to apply that, that same mindset to your personal life or to your goals is something that maybe, maybe doesn't feel natural, but it's, it's something that you do all day, every day. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Victor, before we, uh, let you go here, we'll, we'll link up to some of the things we talked about today, including the the book and some of your other podcast interviews, including your chat with Prescott. Um, wow. You but, guys are really friendly. No competition <laughs> there at all. huh? <laughs> no, I like it. You know what? We're, we have the exact same price point. Uh, <laughs> and if you don't like the show, we'll give you a full refund. Um, <laughs> that is so nice. So you'll, um, tell us about where else we can, uh, we sure. can find your stuff or where, where's the best place to track down the book. All right. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Victor Yako and that's V I C T O R Y O C C O. And the same thing with my website is just my name, Victor And then you can find the book. You can get it through Amazon or you can also find it in limited bookstores. I don't know how many order um, and we'll place it, but 
Uh, one of the best places to find it too is on my publisher's website, and I'll have I'll give you the link for that, Josh. But if you don't mind, I'll also pass along a discount code that will get users or listeners thirty nine percent off. I know it's a weird number. I think that's a psychological thing that my publisher has going on but <laughs> i can give you a discount code 39% discount discount. exactly like you know 38 doesn't sound like enough and 40 is just overboard but 39 <laughs> is the sweet spot so 40 sounds desperate but 39 yeah, exactly. that is just the too a good 40% to be true number book, no one respects that uh so <laughs> i'll give you that code to share with your listeners as well and the link because that need to use the code you need to purchase it through the publisher's website and that's manning publications they have a lot of books. They focus a lot more on development and coding. Um, but so it was it was fun to work with them. Was, I was sort of a new a new thing to them as well. But I was glad that they were willing to take a risk. And then uh, I always like to throw it out there that if you send me a personal email, you will get a personal response. And my email address, shockingly, is my name at gmail dot com. So. Yeah, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of people virtually um, after publishing articles and things that uh, I I know how much courage it can take to reach out to somebody and and write something. And so if anybody chooses to do that, I will definitely make it a priority to respond. Awesome. Well, Victor, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that's episode number 28 in the books. For all of today's show notes, check out obsessedshow.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Now for that discount code, you can click on the link in the show notes or go to manning.com and search for Victor's name, or you can go to manning.com slash books slash design dash for dash the dash mind. That's a mouthful. www.manning.com slash books slash design dash for dash the dash mind and use the code at checkout yako ppc that's y-o-c-c-o-p-p-c for a 39 percent discount again offer code y-o-c-c-o-p-p-c for 39 percent off why 39 percent because it's just the right number Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. To learn more about Miles Herndon, visit milesherndon.com. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe. Our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com. We have some great interviews coming up in the next couple weeks, so be sure and stay tuned and let us know who you think we should interview next. Tweet to at Josh Miles or at Obsessed Show on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.